Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy. And I'm Steve Sademan. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Hey, Stephanie, how was the rodeo? The rodeo was awesome. So I've been told it wasn't like it has been in the past because of uh, COVID-19 public health measures, but uh, the rodeo in St. Sidson is a very big deal. And I'm happy that I was a part of it this year with uh, some of my closest friends. Have you ever been to a rodeo, by the way, Steve? I have. When I was living in Texas, I went to a rodeo, uh, just one, but it was, it was a, a memorable experience. And do you have cowboy boots? I don't have cowboy boots. We never invested in cowboy boots. I do have a cowboy hat, but the cowboy hat I have was actually bought before that when my sister-in-law got married for the first time. She had a mock shotgun wedding, so we all dressed up for the occasion. Okay, so you'd fit right in. <laughs> well, next time we should go together and do a special Battle Rhythm episode of edition. <laughs> That sounds fantastic. Speaking of exhibitions where the outcome at the end of the day is pretty much similar to what happened beforehand, which is that the cows don't get, get to go loose or anything. We had an election where nothing changed. How do you feel about it? Well, it's, uh, it's difficult to be that enthusiastic about the whole thing, especially given the cost and the uh, almost identical outcome. What I did notice this time around, what was different from how I experienced uh, election day was the long lineups in Kingston. I'd never experienced that anywhere else. I suppose it's because of the public health uh, screening and, and all that. And also because where I vote, uh, there are a lot of students who may not have their voter cards since they just moved back to the city after a long COVID absence. But it seemed to have been the case elsewhere too. You voted early, so I guess you didn't see or experience any long lineups to vote yesterday. No, I I biked around yesterday, so I saw a, a bit of a line at one of the schools near me. But when I voted last week, I was able to fly through. I walked in. I pretty much didn't have, almost didn't even have to stop walking to get from the first person asked me a question to getting to the desk. It was there was nobody in front of me. It was very fast. So I guess for me, the the big part of the election that was frustrating uh, was not so much that we got the same outcome. I mean that happens at times. The, the liberals gambled and they didn't lose, but they didn't win on their gamble. But having a, uh, the election during the pandemic elevated the fringe groups that otherwise might not have had much of a platform, that the PPC and the other anti-maskers and other anti-Trudeau folks who were pretty obnoxious the entire time okay. wouldn't have had the venues to get all that media attention that they got for the past month and a half or so. And I, so I think that was problematic. It's good that the, the far right didn't get any seats, although I guess it came close in a few places, but and they got far more votes than we would like. But I, I do think that was like the worst part about the election was was that that part of it that and of course that maybe we there were some super spreader events that I, we will know later on whether any of the rallies any of the things led to more cases but it certainly wasn't the right time to have an election. Mm -hmm. No, I agreed. And there was another issue that uh, caught your attention that you wrote about on your blog, and that was former generals endorsing the Conservative Party. And Aaron O'Toole. Yes, it was uh, retired Vice Admiral Norman, who has his own problems with the Liberal Party. And it was uh, retired General Rick Hillier, uh, who was at a, a campaign event over the weekend. And what I argued uh, in my piece, which was originally an op-ed, but it didn't get picked up, to be honest. I put on my blog and then I tweeted at it and it got a lot of uh, engagement, is I basically argued that it's wrong for 
were senior retired military officers, those at the, that, that were at the top of the chain of command, to speak out and endorse parties because they can be seen as representing the military, that people can infer from their stances what the active military thinks. Now, it may not be the case that, that people in the military actually think the same way as Norman or Hillier, but the fact that Norman in particular was doing it pretty much almost in uniform, if I remember correctly, and Hillier are doing it, they're, they're trading on their rank, they're trading on their status as folks who have led the Canadian Armed Forces. And so it makes it appear as if the military is taking a stand in the election. And what I was making a point is that scholars of civil military relations are increasingly arguing that it's inevitable to talk about militaries as being political actors, that we can't expect them to be outside of politics, but we can expect them to be nonpartisan actors, that they shouldn't be taking sides in for or against particular parties. And so that was the claim I made. Uh, mm -hmm. And I spent much of yesterday replying to people who were saying, well, what about people who run for office? And I was like, I'm not a huge fan of that either when we have military officers run for office, retired ones, but at least those folks are held accountable by the voters. They get to vote for or against those people. Like Andrew O'Toole was playing up his, his background as a, as, a, as a helicopter pilot. But I think that's less problematic because Hillier and Norman are not being held accountable by the voters. What I was basically calling for was that retired military officers should be restrained as they have in the past, that political parties maybe can come to an arms control agreement of some kind and agree not to get the support of the endorsements from right to military officers. And I was calling for the media to ask tough questions. Is Norman doing this because he's got sour grapes about how the liberals treated him, which makes it less about Norman's political, you know, military expertise, more about his personal experience. How about asking uh, Rick Hillier about, well, since he took $20,000 a month to help Ontario with its pretty mixed initial vaccine rollout, is that why he's supporting conservatives? Because he got paid by, by the provincial conservative party? Or is he doing it because he thinks that, you know, and, and pursue that, those questions, they should be asked tough questions and should just be saying, here, I'm going to stamp this party with my military identity. And I did point out also in the piece that this has been become a problem in the United States where it used to be occasionally there would be an endorsement. But then in the past couple of cam campaigns, you saw an arms race between the Democrats and the Republicans about each side piling up as many military endorsements as possible. And that makes the U.S. military more of a partisan actor. And we see that actually in surveys where Democrats now have more trust in the military when the president of the United States is of the same party as, as the Democrats, and the Republicans have more trust in the military when a Republican is president, which means that the, the military is itself becoming a partisan actor. And I think that's dangerous. And I think that's distinct from having other people endorse, you know, political candidates. It's, I think it's very problematic. People can say, well, you know, we've had other folks do it in the past, but I, I, I think that, that that having these two do it right at this time was particularly problematic. And we should criticize it no matter who these folks endorse. Mm -hmm. That was a good blog post, Steve, and we'll include it in the show notes. And what's interesting is that despite O'Toole, for instance, having this uh, military background and, and being a veteran, there hasn't been a lot of focus on defense issues and military issues throughout this campaign. There was mention of the sexual misconduct crisis in the Canadian Armed Forces. And of course, if you compare the different parties' platforms, there was mention of various defense procurement projects. And right now we know that you know strong, secure, and engaged will remain the, the relevant document for the foreseeable future. But uh, that is something that our colleagues and you know, commentators more broadly talked a lot about uh, the absence, not only of, of security and defense issues, but of international policy issues more broadly. And indeed, it's something that we talked about two weeks ago when we were recording, and things didn't really improve that much over the last two weeks. I mean, sure, you could argue that climate change was a, was a big issue, and it's difficult to completely ignore the international ramifications of climate change. Well, they managed um, to do so. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, exactly. They managed to do so. Same thing with COVID. You know, again, when you look at the platforms, yeah, there were talks about you know, global health initiatives and international cooperation around the vaccine, but largely absent from the, the public debates and, and commentary throughout this campaign. The issue that probably got the most attention, and that's mostly due to the unfortunate timing of, of the launch of this election, was uh, Afghanistan, uh, because of course, uh, the, the launch of the campaign coincided with Kabul fa falling to the Taliban. So there was quite a bit of attention, especially in August on the evacuation as it was criticized by the different party leaders. But at the same time, those same party leaders uh, had to tread carefully on this issue because it's not clear what other parties would have done differently <laughs> uh, since so much of Canada's efforts depended on its allies, especially the U.S. But uh, 
obviously blame cannot be wholly deflected when it comes to the special visa programs failures. Anyway, so that issue was, was very visible early on in the election. But on the whole, I think our assessment from two weeks ago sort of stands because international policy was very much of a background issue. And then climate change, the economy, COVID, and very much this domestic focus was predominant. It was, it was pretty amazing how they could talk about COVID and climate change without talking about the international policy side of things, but they managed to do so. It was very striking that in the debates that they really, really did an excellent job of avoiding any discussion of foreign or defense policy. And it's understandable given that Canadians don't really vote on it, but you would have thought that there would be some effort to do so just to try to draw some differences between the parties. So there's some good Twitter threads today by Emmett McFarlane and others about how the opposition failed to really distinguish themselves from Trudeau. And they could have pointed out that some of the international policy failures, whether that's the aftermath of Afghanistan, which I think, as you're right, everybody would have failed it pretty much the same way, or the handling of China. I was kind of glad, actually, in some ways that China wasn't really a central issue because I was worried that we'd get a lot of China bashing that might actually spill over and cause more anti-Asian violence in Canada. But there, there was really nothing discussed at all. And I think, you know, we can take a look at the liberal platform and, and think, well, what's going to be different? What are they promising that's going to be new uh, that wasn't in their old platforms? And I think the answer is a little bit of stuff. We could get to that in a minute. But it's not like the conservative platform and the NDP platform presented alternatives of paths that will now not be followed because the NDP platform was super vague and the conservative platform had strange things in it, like let's send more troops to Latvia, even though the Latvians and NATO are not asking for them. <laughs> so I, I don't think that platforms, even though they had foreign policy components to it, defense policy components to it, really would have, you know, really made anything stand out in terms of, oh, well, if we had a slightly different outcome in this election, we'd be going down a different road. I you know, and on China, which is the other issue in terms of international policy that probably got the most play aside from Afghanistan, no one can really disagree on the basic strategy of working with allies and partners to increase pressure on China. And so pretty much every party leader mentioned something to that effect, and they didn't differ much on that front. And of course, Canada can't really afford not to do that, not to work with allies and partners to put pressure on China. O'Toole may have been a bit different from the others in striking maybe a terser tone mm -hmm. and try to, I suppose, convince Canadians that the Conservatives would take a tougher stance on China. But that's really easier said than done. And it's not exactly clear how this approach, like banning Huawei from the Canadian 5G network, which is one of the examples mentioned in the platform, would really deliver on the outcomes that Canada cares about, most notably the, the release of the two Michaels. I wonder, though, whether just the, the, the tone that's employed matters because it demonstrated some decisiveness that Trudeau has been lacking of late on mm -hmm. international policy. There's been a lot of dithering on foreign policy issues from the 5G file to UN peacekeeping. And to me, Trudeau really dropped the ball on UN peacekeeping, and I'm surprised this this didn't get more play during the election campaign. It was mentioned, but just barely. And I think it bears repeating that Canada has very few peacekeepers out there. I checked this morning and it's 53 peacekeepers, uh, both military and, and police personnel. They launched the LC initiative, uh, which we've talked about on this podcast and which several mm -hmm. of our guests have talked about. But what are the tangible contributions to UN operations in terms of Canadian personnel and equipment that would sort of mirror the expectations of what was said in, in Trudeau's initial campaign when he made it in 2015 with this placing huge expectations on what Canada might be able to deliver on the foreign policy front, but more specifically when it came to UN peacekeeping. That was such a visible part of the liberal promise. And, mm -hmm. you know, now we're going into a third mandate. And, you know, I think people are really disheartened when it comes to what Canada uh, will in fact be delivering on the UN peacekeeping front. But it's the UN General Assembly this week in, in mm -hmm. New York. So maybe some new pledges will be <laughs> emanating from Canada. But so far, to me, that's been the biggest, I won't say foreign policy failure, but one area where this, this government has repeatedly under-delivered. Yeah, and I think the Conservatives couldn't really play this card because they don't really have an interest in peacekeeping either. But the NDP certainly left this on the table, that they had vague references in their program, but they didn't really come up with anything that would have been specific. And, I, and it goes to the larger pattern of, and I think the NDP's failure was that they had a lot of vague, 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 vague things to draw lines between them and, and the 
liberals, but didn't draw any sharp lines that might have caused some people on the line between the liberals and the DP to vote one way or the other. They just didn't make it clear what would be very, very different in real policy terms. And this was true on peacekeeping. There was an opportunity for the, criti- the, the opposition to criticize Trudeau this past week, which is that there's a reindeer game that we're not invited to, and it might be because our nose is not is too shiny. The Australians, the British, and the Americans have signed a new agreement that leaves the rest of the world out. And boy, are the French upset. That is the (laughs) French of uh, France. They've pulled back their uh, ambassadors from Australia and and the United States. They've canceled events. They're super upset. And uh, the opposition could raise questions about why are we being left out of this, Stephanie? And I guess that's a question for you. you. know, Why aren't we playing in these reindeer games? It's great because we had lots of colleagues weigh in on that through op-eds and blog posts too. I read Adam Chapnick's, uh, Stephanie Carvin and Thomas Genoz, mm-hmm. and also Kim Nossel posted a blog about that. So I, I thought those those takes were really interesting. And I think the common thread there for, for the three of them is that we shouldn't be surprised about this. And there's mm-hmm. different reasons for why this lack of surprise is, is warranted. But I think it bears raising the question of, you know, what's in it for Canada on this front, Canada already being part of the Five Eyes, Canada, you know, being part of NATO, Canada having really close bilateral relationships with the US on the security and defense front. And so, you know, it, it's worth looking at Australia and what this new security pact is going to mean over the the short, medium, and long term when it comes to uh, perhaps Chinese retaliation and repercussions. So at the very least, we could see this as maybe a a prudent position for Canada to hold, although it may not even have been strategic at all, because, you know, the extent to which Canada was made aware of this to begin with is uh, unclear. It's possible also to see this deal entirely or almost entirely through the prism of the submarine purchase. So, you know, here it would help explain why it's Australia, the UK and the United States specifically, because they would now be the three countries sharing this technology in terms of the US sharing it with two privileged allies and two privileged allies only being the UK and Australia. So if we put the nuclear powered submarines at the center of our understanding of this broader security then it it makes sense to restrict it to those three countries only. So I I think there's a a lot of angles here that do matter. But what struck me from the three analyses from our colleagues was that, you know, they weren't surprised at all. Uh, And in fact, and this is something that uh, I found interesting from the op-ed in The Globe, from Damageno and Stephanie Carvin in particular, is that informally, this idea of three eyes... as mm-hmm. opposed to five eyes, was was a thing already before this deal was even made public. So I wasn't aware of this, and I look forward to reading their book on Canadian intelligence. But I found it interesting that informally, the three eyes grouping is apparently a thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's funny how powerful the reactions are to this thing. And I've been wary of wading into this too deeply, because I think that the proof will be in the pudding that we'll know more about this, you know, not right now, but in months and, and years to come about whether this makes sense for Canada at all, whether this is something that, that, you know, that we're being ignored because our foreign policy apparatus is too passive, because our government can't deliver, because there was an election going on, so they couldn't do anything about it. I think it, I, you know, I think it was a sub deal. It makes sense for the United States, for, for, for the United States the UK and Australia to work on on their own, we're not going to be buying nuclear subs anytime too soon. You know, there was some discussion of submarines and I think the conservative platform, but I think nuclear nuclear submarines are way too expensive for for Canada. So I don't think they're anywhere in our horizon. The big expensive project coming up ahead is, is modernization of the northern warning systems, which was in the level platform. I think we're seeing more, more action, more discussion and action on that. But I don't think this was a game that we were really fit to play in because of really what it's focused on. Now, if it ends up being about AI and quantum computing and other advanced technologies that the Americans, Brits, and Aussies race ahead with and leave us behind, then that's more problematic. But also, this one deal doesn't mean that we're left out of those those situations. Uh, we could get into that at some point if there's enough energy and enthusiasm on our part and if we have anything to offer those three other countries. But I do think that it does reveal something that has been consistent for the past six years, which is that this government really doesn't care that much, doesn't put invest that much into foreign policy. We saw that in the election. We saw that in the peacekeeping that any, if it gets risky or expensive or even possibly risky or expensive, they don't 
try it. And I think maybe it might also be the case that having burned three times and going to Asia, the Trudeau government doesn't want to really think about Asia anymore because they have understood that that we don't do Asia very well. But it would seem to be the case that Australia would be different from that. But anyway, I, I right now I, I'm calling it a tempest in the teapot because I, I'm not sure these are this is really a, a game that's worth all the storm about it. I think the French are certainly overplaying their hand. I don't think this is the end of the transatlantic alliance. I find it strange that the French are complaining about being elbowed out of an arms deal since they are quite noted for doing the same to anybody else when they get the chance. I don't think the United States would be withdrawing its ambassador from Canada if we bought, you know, the Eurofighter as opposed to the F-35. I just think it's it's a lot. It's a lot more than it should be, but it probably does reveal some basic tendencies in Canadian foreign and defense policy that we need to think a little bit about. I mean, one of the things I think we should do is we should stop relying on on strong, secure, engaged from four years ago, and we should do another defense review. The world has changed a little bit in the past four years. We should have to wait eight or 10 years for a new defense review. I do think that one of the things that came out of this discussion about AUKUS, I don't know how you pronounce this, new, new alliance, but I do think we need to do a foreign, a foreign policy review. It would make sense to really have a serious conversation about what Canada sees as its role in the world and how to get there. And that would then provide firmer ground for a defense review that can then rev be revised to keep what worked in the SSE and then extend it to the latter half of the 2020s. Yeah, it would have probably been a good idea to engage in consultations across a range of, of issues. If this indeed is a pivotal moment or one of the most important pivotal moments since 1945, as Justin Trudeau claimed, maybe it would have made sense to engage in, in broad consultations and reviews of existing policies than to call a new election. But, you know, I agree with you on the foreign policy front. And, and in fact, you know, when we were doing the defense consultations or participating in them several years ago, one of the points that had been made during the roundtables and that we kept talking about afterwards was that, you know, does it really make sense to do a defense policy uh, consultation ahead of a foreign policy one? Because you know, defense capabilities should support broader foreign policy objectives. And I, I do think that it's time, you know, to have that conversation and to have a clear foreign policy statement or statement, which would give, give them clear strategic guidance to firmly anchor the defense policy. And then, you know, maybe that's also part of the whole debate of the security pact that Canada seems to be left out of is that lack of decisiveness or clarity on, on the broader objectives. I know that in, in the analysis, another reason that was mentioned was Canada's lack of decision on whether it would ban Huawei from its 5G network. So that was also mentioned in, in, in the global op-ed. The, the issue of indecisiveness comes up again and again, and, and I mentioned it at the beginning of our conversation, but at least some clarity on, on what foreign policy orientation this new government should take would be a welcome discussion to engage in, and, and for sure consultations would be valuable in, in this context. We do have the continuation or the extension of Canada's so-called feminist foreign policy. That's primarily a feminist international assistance policy. So that is you know, something to perhaps start engaging with, with, with the public and uh, foreign policy experts more deeply on uh, so that the contours become a little bit more specific, but also far reaching than what it currently is, which is an amalgamation of different policy documents from the international assistance policy to the Women, Peace and Security National Action Plan. So I, I definitely agree with you on that front. And maybe this is a good segue also for our feature interview, because, you know, thinking back to the campaign, one of the issues that didn't get a lot of play was this discrepancy between the, the rhetoric uh, that the liberals have when it comes to human rights and, and protecting human rights globally, and then certain actions like the arms deal with the, with Saudi Arabia, and perhaps not standing up as forcefully on a range of human rights issues as, as Canada should, or as its rhetoric might imply. So that was part of the discussion that you had with Cesar Haramillo from Project Plowshares, where you scrutinized this decision that Canada is faced with when it comes to, you know, whether or not it should sell arms to uh, regimes with uh, uh, horrendous human rights records like Saudi Arabia. What an excellent segue for our interview today, Stephanie. Yes, I talked to Cesar. He's a, a member of the advisory board of the CDSN, and he uh, leads Project Plowshares Canada. And they have a they have a report how Canada has violated international law in its arms sales to Saudi Arabia. 
And so maybe now that we've got another two or four years of liberal governance, they could make some hard choices about these things, about maybe not, not shipping as much arms to places that are, are going to use our weapons for human rights violations. So Stephanie, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Enjoy the fall. The weather has been phenomenal thus far. Get out before it gets cold. The skies around us have been so very blue the past few days. I know the rains are coming, mm-hmm. uh, but good, walk outside before you have to s- stare at the screens again for a while. I might do that uh, at this very moment. Uh, thank you. It's always nice to talk to you. I'm glad we got to debrief post-election. Uh, we weren't sure if we were going to have a clear result when we were going to tape this episode on Tuesday morning, but it seems that that we do. And so it was good to uh, chat about it with you. And I will talk to you very soon. Have a great week. Thank you. Today on Battle Rhythm, we have Cesar Yaramillo, who is the head of Project Plowshares in Canada. And he's also a member of our advisory board and has been a, a key player in helping the CDSN come to be. Cesar, welcome to Battle Rhythm. Great to be here, Steve, with you. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's our pleasure. Project Plowshares, in coordination with the Amnesty International Canada, came out with a report about Canada's role in shipping arms to Saudi Arabia. Can you tell us a little bit about what, you got, what your, your teamwork on this, uh, what you found out? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And we're just coming off of... Uh, a very busy week and a very busy few days. And before that, literally months of months of, of work and, 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 and uh, uh, various people, you know, coming together to, to collaborate on, on this report from both Project Dodgers and Amnesty International. Basically, we have followed the, the sale of Canadian-made weapons to Saudi Arabia for, for several years, including in particular, a multi-billion dollar, dollar deal that is still ongoing in the, in, in the amount of roughly $15 billion, which was announced about six years ago. The government, through it all, has had various defenses, various lines of argument uh, to, uh, to, to defend its rationale for continuing this deal. And when I say the government, by the way, I mean both the, the deal was negotiated under the Prime Minister Stephen Harper, but where the green light was given, the official export permits were issued under, under uh, Justin Trudeau as Prime Minister. And the, the, both governments have had various talking points, you know, lines of arguments to defend the deal. And last year, I think they come out with with a, with a document in which they sort of consolidated all of their defense of the deal. And this document was called the final report, the final report on Canadian arms exports to Saudi Arabia and was issued by Global Affairs Canada. And this was a, a document in which they articulated basically their best defense of, uh, for the continuation of these exports, which had been controversial since day one. When we saw the report, we were not persuaded at all. We, were, we, we found flaws you know, in the logical analysis, in the interpretation of the law, interpretation of legal obligations, both domestic law and under international law, including the, the International Arms Trade Treaty to which Canada is now a, now a party. We found that the, the analysis jumped to conclusions. We found that there was quite a bit of cherry picking of the evidence arriving at certain, at certain uh, preconceived uh, conclusions that the Canadian government uh, seemed to want to arrive at. We, 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 we thought that it was a poorly uh, elaborated document and we, we felt compelled to respond to it. This document, I might add, what prompted, prompted it was the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi at the, at the mm-hmm. uh, Consulate of Saudi Arabia in Istanbul in 2018. And amid the global outrage, including in Canada, for, for this brazen, brazen, audacious killing, brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi in the, in the, uh, at the Consulate of Istanbul, for which the highest levels of the Saudi government are undoubtedly linked and involved in this murder. In that context, the Canadian government and, and responding to public pressure launched an investigation that uh, resulted in this final report that I mentioned. So once again, we were we were not persuaded with this final report and in, with our friends and colleagues at Amnesty International, we, we said we need, to, we need to point out the, the many deficiencies and shortcomings that are apparent in, in, the, in, the, in the government's analysis. And I will tell you, I'm happy to go into further detail, but I will tell you the, the, the key finding from our perspective is that Canada is violating international law today. 
Canada is in violation of international law. It is not complying with the International Arms Trade Treaty, and it is also not complying with its own domestic arms control regulation. And the corollary to this conclusion is that arms exports to Saudi Arabia, to come into compliance with the law, arms exports to, uh, to Saudi Arabia must be immediately canceled. Okay, well, so that's, that's, that's very big. So what, what are the major reasons why your team found that Canada is not in compliance with international law? The main reasons are because the, the key threshold in both domestic and international arms control regulations for denying export permits is the notion of risk of misuse. Now, mm -hmm. time and again, the Canadian government has conveniently dismissed this fact because this is not a matter of opinion or interpretation. This is a fact. Conveniently dismissed this fact and, and has focused on the notion of conclusive evidence. And everything is conditional upon this theoretical finding of conclusive evidence. Mm. Should there be conclusive evidence of misuse, then we may act. Should there be conclusive evidence of civilians being killed or maimed, etc., we may act. And every time we have reminded them, listen, the word evidence doesn't appear even once in the arms trade treaty. This is a risk-based regime. And the analysis is different. For evidence, you act after the civilian has already been killed or maimed. Whereas a risk-based analysis is precisely done to prevent the civilian from being killed or maimed, mm -hmm. to prevent the export from, from happening in the, in the first place. And Canada's analysis has been wrongheaded from that perspective. So the risk, has, we believe, and, and, and there is credible evidence, documentary evidence to, to back up ample and ample evidence of risk, if as it were. There's ample evidence of that. There is a clear and present risk of misuse. But even this higher made-up standard of the Canadian government mm -hmm. of conclusive evidence of actual misuse has been met repeatedly, both within Saudi borders, for example, in the eastern province, in, 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 around a location called Awamilia, there have been heavy-handed security crackdowns by the Saudi forces in which Canadian vehicles have been employed and in which scores of civilians have been killed. Undoubtedly, this is a fact. The media, Reuters, has reported on this. And, and separately, beyond Saudi borders, in neighboring Yemen, we have what is widely considered to be the worst humanitarian crisis of our time. And there is no doubt whatsoever that the chief instigator of this crisis is the, is the, the Saudi regime, which is leading a military intervention. It is also facing, to admittedly, the Houthis, in, in, in Yemen, which are not nice guys either and, and have exhibited a pattern of brutality, etc. So this is not to sound apologetic for the other side either. It's a brutal side. But Canada is not arming the Houthis. We're arming the Saudis. So that, that's why our concern is focused with Canada's compliance vis-a-vis -vis the Saudis. And the United Nations has gone on record to say that they have been involved in war crimes, in the systematic targeting of civilians. And despite this, and despite the fact that there have been instances of diversion, which means under the arms trade treaty sort of language that weapons intended for use in Saudi Arabia, Canadian weapons have been spotted inside Yemen. There have been, again, documentary evidence of this. Despite all of these red flags, Canada has been determined to continue supplying weapons to the Saudis. So we are baffled. And this really seems like a deal no matter what because every conceivable red flag has been raised. There is documentary evidence that we have pointed very clearly to what the obligations under domestic and international law are. And Canada has um, refused, you know, I think it's that there is not still exporting to Saudi Arabia. It's not evidence that the case hasn't been strong enough, but rather that it has, it has landed on deaf ears in Ottawa. And so I guess uh, the frustration right now is, is that what matters more to, I'm going to ask you to speculate, but what matters more to Canadian politicians are jobs where these arms are produced than the obligations that Canada has made domestically and internationally. Absolutely. And we have heard that exactly. That's not even speculative. We have heard that exactly, that, is, that part of, not the only, but part of the rationale relates to, to creating or sustaining because the verb they use also changes, you know, sometimes it's creating jobs, sometimes it's sustaining existing jobs, etc. And those economic projections, by the way, have not really been tested. You know, they were very optimistic at the get-go. I'm sure no one denies money is coming in billions of dollars to the Canadian economy. But there is a limit to that analysis. Because that is the purpose of arms control. And that is, a, in fact, a, by definition, 
how norms work, you know, that there is a cost to abiding by norms. And we are not making the claim that without the deal, you're still going to get the $15 billion, not, not at all, yeah. but that norms matter and that you have to set bar, at the, you know, draw a line somewhere. Because if the rationale is only financial, really, and not to sound facetious, what's to stop us from selling to a drug cartel? You know, if the money is good enough and the number of jobs created are good enough or to a dictatorship elsewhere in North Korea, what have you, you know, because uh, Saudi Arabia, and this is not an overstatement, I don't think it is, Saudi Arabia sets the bar impossibly low. If Saudi Arabia is eligible to receive Canadian-made military exports, who would not be? Really? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's, it's, it's, it's a funny question. And one that I think is, is funny that it's asked in the first place, like why should Canada, peace-loving Canada, human rights promoter in Canada, not be arming one of the very worst human rights violators on the planet? And the fact that we've, having the, we've been addressing this question for more than five years now is, is interesting in itself. I think it should be self-evident that there is a question. And from the standpoint of security, I mean, one of the things that, that we at the CDSN want to think about is not only how does Canada foster security for itself and for others, but how it might, in through its efforts, foster insecurity for itself and others. Right. And so arming Saudi Arabia is probably, not, it has not led to greater stability on the peninsula, and it has led to greater insecurity on the part of people both in Saudi Arabia and in Yemen. I mean, Absolutely. one could... Like one could say, you hypothesize, well, okay, maybe it's violating our policies, violating international law if we do this one thing, if it will lead to the end of the war, if it will lead to right. peace and stability and a better outcome for the people of Yemen. Right, right. But given, but it's not how, even doing that. No, given how the Saudis have prosecuted this war, it's been ex- almost explicitly aimed at the publics of, of, of the public of Yemen and has been most damaging to to the ordinary citizens. And it has not been an effective use of, 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 of force. Uh, the Saudi, you, you know, as much as people complain about the failure of in Afghanistan, we can talk about that a little bit. The, you know, the United States and its allies, including Canada, tried to avoid civilian casualties and they caused civilian casualties. I'm not sure the Saudis are trying to avoid causing civilian casualties at all. So again, yeah, I think you're right that it's one of the worst countries to be shipping arms to given their behavior, uh, right. both domestically right. and internationally. And, and that's a great point about regional instability because Canada, early on, one of the defense lines was also that they were a, a, almost a, a, a stalwart, you know, a, a force for stability in the region. But the, the opposite has proven to be true. You know, the, the, the region is a mess. Yemen, Yemen is a mess, so they are a force for, for instability. And what makes this more harder to swallow, if you will, is that Canada has done all of this while claiming that we have some of the strongest export controls in the world. So it is this this speaking out of both sides of the mouth. I could more easily accept a notion of let's have an honest and an honest narrative around our export controls and say Canada has mediocre to okay export controls, you know, and that would be an honest. And maybe we can, as a society, have the debate, even the security sector, and say, listen, how much do we value human rights vis-a-vis job creation? Like, really, let's have another honest debate. And for vis-a-vis, is there a threshold at which, you know, is it 15 billion? Okay, after which, and I'm being a little bit facetious intentionally, mm-hmm. after which we cut corners. It's okay to cut some corners on human rights because, you know, we want to bring money. In the, and, but at least then we can say, okay, we have a, an okay export controls regime. But that's not the case. Canada claims at every turn that we have some of the strongest in the world, but that's just not compatible with the notion of arming Saudi Arabia for a host of reasons that we have that we have identified, including the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, like in broad deadline. I might add, export military export controls are but one avenue. I mean, to to uh, to stop these exports to Saudi Arabia. I mean, I, I feel the need to remind um, listeners, you know, Canada can including today, make the sovereign decision to store arms for Saudi Arabia, whatever the penalties, whatever the implication. I mean, we, we're not bound to, you know, to, to arm them, you know, we can. So, and we have the Magnitsky uh, uh, law, which also is tailor-made for the Khashoggi killing, for example, and which would give us as well legal ground for stopping arms exports to Saudi Arabia. I think it's a matter of political will at the end of the day, and, and being aware that you know, there's no way that that a decision in this regard is going to please all sectors. You know, you have mm-hmm. the, 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 some for or against, but I think the the merit 
of doing what we consider to be coming, Canada coming into compliance with, with this law, would, you know, even the government from a self-interest perspective would tend to gain internationally in credibility and, and, and human rights standing and, and restoring some of that Canada's sort of credentials in arms control. So yeah, it's a shame that they, they, they haven't realized that they're, they're, even from a self-interest perspective, there, there may be some merit to doing well, the, the challenge is I, I, I got an email this week asking me to sign a public letter to try to get foreign policy to be addressed in the election mm -hmm. because the folks, folks who say foreign policy don't think it'll be addressed in the election. Right. And so the, the challenge here is is you're, you're really running against the stream because I don't think Canadians, despite what, what they say is their values, are going to vote based on this issue. They, they can't. You know, given that the conservatives started this uh, arms deal and the liberals right. have carried it on, that means that voters should vote for the NDP or the Greens to punish those two parties for right. their support. But are people, you know, the question is, how do you get, uh, you know, how do you gather out the message that people should vote on foreign policy no, uh, on tough. these issues? It's tough. It's very tough. And, and that, to make matters worse, that applies to not just the, the we follow, in addition to arms exports, you know, nuclear disarmament and a bunch yeah. of issues yeah. that, that are very hard to mainstream, really. Yeah. And I'm sure you know this, you know, these are issues that, that we feel are, everyone should care about, but we are also aware that people have mundane preoccupations on their mind about their jobs and the economy and yeah. vaccines, other things, you know, and, and, and it's, it's hard to really to really get, get uh, lots of attention on it. However, we have been lucky, you know, there has been all things considered somewhat regular coverage, you know, the Global Mail, uh, kudos to reporters like, like, like Stephen Chase, I don't mind naming him, um, steadfastly, you know, covered doggedly pursued this, you know, and, and uh, I believe in a very objective manner and others, BBC globally. At the end of the day, this has been covered in, in French and English and French radio and television. So, yeah. Has the NDP picked up on this at all? Have they showed any interest in this? They have consistency, not with great consistency. I mean, they, they, we were recently, uh, we appeared before the House of Commons mm -hmm. Standing Committee on, on Foreign Affairs and International Development, the mm -hmm. Foreign Affairs Committee for short. And um, Jack Harris, among others, with the, the, the NDP Foreign Affairs Critic, but, but this is a multi-party committee. Actually, and this is a, a very momentous thing, not because we were involved, but in its own right, they yeah. conducted a study, a major study, very rare on the question of arms exports, prompted by some controversy not uh, of arms exports, not to Saudi, but to Turkey, which yeah. were eventually canceled and which we, and I say with all modesty, we were directly involved as well in, in, in sort of uncovering or, or denouncing however we, we may put it that that this this way we're going to the turkey and showing up in among other places in nagorno-karabakh and and, and and libya and syria and, and without permission and, and in violation of and user assurances so see the, the parliament take it upon it taking it upon itself to conduct a study on this and in fact one of our recommendations that we made before the committee and in other forums and in op-eds etc has been parliamentary oversight mm -hmm. for such a high sensitive area of trade you know it's not bananas we're selling <clears throat> there is no parliamentary oversight i think that there ought to be parliamentary oversight for only for for the sake of transparency but i think it would it would also enhance the, the likelihood that that better decisions are made there's more scrutiny on on the on the canadian arms trade well that's that's a play into my ballpark because i i've been yammering about the failure of parliamentary oversight for quite some time, more on right. defense issues than on. Mm -hmm. on, on yeah, on but for, for similar reasons, yeah, I'm yeah. sure, you know. But uh, I, I'm struck by one thing that, that you sort of raised, which is Canada changes policies towards Turkey, mm -hmm. because, but not towards Saudi Arabia. Right. And so I'm curious as to whether the government is more upset by when our arms are transferred out of the hands of those that they're intended to go to versus other things that happen with the arms. So right, it's, right. It's, no. the problem in, in, for, for you and for us in, in Yemen is not so much that the, the Saudis are giving the arms to other people, it's that the Saudis themselves are using them brutally. Mm -hmm. Whereas the problem in Turkey wasn't that the Turks were using drones or whatever it was uh, in the skies over or Azerbaijan and Armenia. It was that right. it seems like they might've given them the equipment to the Azer Azeris in their conflict with Armenia. 
And mm -hmm. so is, is that, do you find that yes. to be the, the, the dynamic? Yes, yes. And for those factors that you have mentioned, but I think there are others as well. Okay. One, something as simple as the sheer, the value of the contract, you know, the, for Turkey was in the millions and for Saudis in the billions. Yeah, the okay, sure. And I think just, it's, it's just easier. It's just yeah. easier to, to do the right thing when there, there is less at stake. And, and if there, seriously, and if, if it were, if we were in the billions of dollars, uh, the Turkey for political resistance or more appetite from the government to protect, mm -hmm. to shield the deal from, from the, this criticism. Mm -hmm. Also, and this is a bit speculative on my part because I'm not an expert in sort of Canada-Turkey relations or Canada-Turkey relations, but I get the impression that Saudi, being on Saudi's good side is carries a, a more weight in Ottawa today in 2021 than being on Turkey. Turkey's good side, and 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 Saudi for other regional dynamics. Saudi is 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 Iran's foe, and the enemy of my enemy is my friend as well. And I think there's there's a lot of that, and we're not the only ones arming Saudi. You know, strategically and as a matter of alliances, uh, we're arming Saudi. The UK is arming Saudi. The US is arming Saudi. France is arming Saudi. So so yeah, there's there's various reasons why why sticking to Saudi may make it make a strong case. But again. The reasons given by, by the government are not compatible with compliance with the law. We can't say that enough. Neither job creation, nor alliances, nor penalties, which is another argument that we have heard from the government, that somehow the prospect of penalties justifies, you know, the, the not compliance with the law, which we find is ludicrous. And, and how expensive, you know, do penalties need to be for, for, for the government to, to relinquish its sovereign duty to, to uphold the law? So yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's instructive. And when we were following the reactions of the Turkish government to the cancellation of, of Canadian exports, they were making the case and asking the question, how come you're still arming Saudi? You know, and, and, and accusing Canada of a double standard. And I'm not, you know, not a bit of kill the messenger here. It doesn't matter who says it, but I think it's a fair question to be asked. You know, what, what about this double standard? What's behind it? Is it the money? Is it the, the alliances? And Canada managed to do it despite Turkey being a member of NATO, because oftentimes one hears <clears throat> in arms deals that there are arguments around interoperability that make it, you know, very necessary that you keep exporting this because you, you need NATO to have interoperability in, in its in his military operations, but still, yeah, we managed to, to, to cancel it. What are the projects this Project Plowshares work on these days? What's the next thing that that-, that Right, is well, one, a big one, a big one has to do with the, with the future of warfare. And then the, the, we call this, this, this broader package of emerging military technologies. And, mm -hmm. and, and it's very exciting and, and for lack of a better cliche, tip of the iceberg territory still, but we, aware of the, the growth potential and, and have, have, you know, not just for pleasure, but for humanity. And, and we're observing how these new new technologies are being integrated into military systems almost as soon as they are, as they are developed. And, and, mm -hmm. and this applies to cyber, this applies to outer space, this applies to autonomous weapon systems and the way in which artificial intelligence is being integrated in, into these systems. There's lots of alarms to be raised, uh, to, and, and, and not to be alarmist, but legitimate alarms, legitimate yeah. questions uh, about uh, safeguards that can reasonably be taken, about about what can reasonably be expected from the Canadian government in terms of you know, how to embrace or yeah. regulate these technologies at home, how to contribute internationally to conversations that are very active and fascinating mm -hmm. about uh, possible parameters and what's considered acceptable and not acceptable in, in terms of these military technologies. But but we're concerned, to be honest, about a certain mm -hmm. trend towards, uh, among other things, taking the human agency out of the loop and, and, and perhaps some over-reliance on, on, on artificial intelligence and algorithms. And then, mm -hmm. yeah, I won't go into detail, but there's a lot already literature on, on, on mm -hmm. cautions that need to be taken. So anyway, so that package of, of emerging military technologies, I expect will continue to be uh, quite uh, quite important for, for, for the whole of Project Cloudshare. So it includes various things, and I'm very lucky to have uh, wonderful. Well, 
I, I really appreciate you spending time with us today. I'm looking forward to the, the next set of reports, particularly about the emergence technology stuff. It's great to have you guys out there. I don't always see eye to eye on some of your stuff. Like I'm a, I'm a fan of NATO and of nuclear deterrence, but that's a conversation for another day. But I, I, I do think that pointing out the, the No, that's fine. And I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of cordial disagreements. <laughs> and honestly, and, and, and this is where the problem, you know, and how, you know, how, you know, I think uh, the, Good creative ideas may may emerge to address these thorny challenges. We're very happy to mem be members of CDSN of the of the, of the security network, and uh, and we feel that this interaction and I mean this you know I thought about this quite a bit this interaction between academia mm -hmm. and civil society is, is is crucial for these endeavors. You know to have a diversity of views and, and to avoid some sort of a echo chamber mentality and and and. and those sorts of things. So it's, it's, it's good. It's good to have diverse voices in, in the room and around the table. Well, fantastic. We really appreciate your time today. All right. Thank you. Uh, for this week's R&R segment, I've got a book and I've got two TV shows. The book is uh, The Hardest Place. It's a book by an American journalist, Wesley Morgan, about Afghanistan. And so it's a different portrait of the war. It's uh, on the southern part, eastern part of Afghanistan that was very, very violent. And it wasn't so much outreach as much as just unending combat. And so it's a different perspective on, on, on the conflict and um, in the middle of reading it. And it's just a well-written, engaging account of, of a piece of, of that conflict. Also watching TV. Uh, and I'm going to have two suggestions for you. One a little more silly than the other. One that has ended, essentially. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is now on Netflix, just ended its run. And it's about a silly group of cops in New York. And yeah, the last season had a real problem because it was post-George Floyd and they've had to figure out how to talk about policing. And so they mostly talked about other stuff than policing. But the show itself comes from the same people behind Parks and Rec and other shows like that. And it's full of heart and, and silliness. And, and so it's a, despite the challenges of modern day policing, it was a, a delightful show to watch for so many years. Uh, I, I didn't really have much faith in Andy Samberg pulling it off, but he did. And it was really great, particularly Andre Brower, who was known more for his dramatic chops in TV shows like Homicide and showing his comedic abilities. Uh, plus, his character had a corgi, so that always made me feel good because I, I missed the half corgi I, I had for so many years. And then there's Reservation Dogs, which is not about dogs. It's not about corgis. It's about a group of indigenous kids in Oklahoma dealing with this, the challenges of living on the reservation and dealing with the poverty and the stress and all the challenges that come along with it. And it has some funny light moments to it. It has some serious moments to it. And it's really engaging. And so those are the three recommendations for this week. And as always, you know, be careful. Good luck with uh, managing this unending pandemic. We're almost to the other side. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.